0: Well, good morning, everyone. What an exciting morning for you to be here. There's a lot of neat things going on. Uh, Some of the—was your heart just, like, lifted when the organ, like, Josh is just laying on all the hands and—ah! Some of you, it was the ukulele that got you, but that's all right. Man, it is good to be here with you this morning. My name is Pastor Milo, and Welcome. Uh, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, this time of year is kind of like our Super Bowl, Uh, so uh, we're so glad that you came, so glad that you're here. Uh, Man, there's so much that we want to share with you, Uh, but it's good that you're here with us today. So I'm glad that you're fired up, I'm glad that you're excited because uh, this week's passage is probably going to uh, work on some of that this morning. Uh, When I was in high school, I was on the wrestling team. Anyone on the wrestling team? Uh, A few of you, okay. Okay. And so uh, I don't know if this was your school or the place you came. You always had theme music when you had a home wrestling meet that you came out with. And so for us, of course, uh, we were the Pioneer Panthers. And so our theme music was the Eye of the Tiger. I'm not really sure where that came from, but it was a good theme song anyway. Anyway. And so we would come running out and we'd run around the outside of the ring and we had, uh, we would shut the lights off and someone in the back would take a cassette tape and jam it into the PA system, click, click, and you'd hear it click and you'd hear it almost start to wind up. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, it's because you have no idea what a cassette tape is and that's all right, but it's one of the things that I get to feel a little bit older in this church than some of you. And so the, the, the eye of the tiger would come out, bow, 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 bow. It still gets me excited every time I hear it. (laughs) Yep, you're all there. You're with me. So we would run around the thing and then we would each take turns. All the weight classes, you'd break off. And we had it timed out to the song. Yes, this is the wrestling team, but we had a very choreographed thing. That we would come out and we would go and each the weight classes, you'd each wrestle for a second. You'd have about 30 seconds to show your best move. And and I'm sure we looked very, very intimidating. We would have the strobe light going so your eyes are tricking out and everything else. And I'm sure the other team were shaking in their boots. I don't know. But the reality of it is, is that the whole thing was choreographed. It was, it was just as bad as the WWE or anything else. So we would run out and we would each do our very best move that we knew that we could do beyond all else. But you would always would whisper or yell because the music was loud so it didn't matter anyways. Like the guy would take you down and you would dive and throw yourself over and kick yourself into the air so that it looked really, really good. And so this theme music, the excitement that builds up for us, like, man, this is really exciting. This is really, really good. These guys look really, really intimidating. And at the end of the day, I wrestled on the wrestling team at Pioneer Central School for six years. And in that six years, if you wrestle about 25 matches a year, that means I had about 150 matches, 100 to 150 matches or so there. And at the end of the day... My senior year, I was the captain, one of the captains of the team, and I've won maybe 20 out of 25 of my matches my senior year, but the other years I was a lot closer to five and 20 than I was to 20 and five. Uh, I was a wrestler that, if you're in the wrestling community, you know what this term is, I was a fish. What that means, if you ever see a fish flopping around on the ground somewhere, and all you have to do is go over there and press on it to push it down, that's basically what my role was on the team, was don't get pinned, just flop around and see if you can make it to the end of the match. That was my role on the team. It's a far cry from the intimidating Eye of the Tiger, right? But that was reality. And what happens here, so we're celebrating Palm Sunday, and you kind of have the entrance music, the theme music is playing. Jesus comes onto the scene, and the crowds are cheering. The crowds are going wild. They are so excited for their champion, their king, to enter the ring. He is entering in Jerusalem, and the way that he is coming through, and coming through on a donkey is just as he was prophesied to be. This is the Messiah, the king that they have been waiting for. But the difference between that story and my story was that I was a sham. I was a fraud. I was a 5-and-20 wrestler at best. This man, the son of God, really is the king entering into Jerusalem. And as we read, I'll just read it for you here today. It says this, they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. These people are overjoyed. They're excited. They're throwing their coats down before him. Jesus found a young donkey. He sat on it. As it is written, as was prophesied, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming. He will be seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples didn't understand all this. It was only after Jesus was glorified that they realized these things had been written about him. These things had been done to him. But now the crowd that was with him, when he had called Lazarus from the tomb, he had raised Lazarus from the dead, they continued to spread the word. They were following. The crowd is growing. Many people, because they had heard he had performed this sign, they all came out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, this is getting us nowhere, or this is getting out of control. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Jesus was their adversary. In this moment, when they saw all this excitement, they saw all of the energy that is building behind this leader, they changed their approach. They would go from quietly standing in the side, mocking him, to publicly smearing him, lying about him, going to the point of rigging a court trial against him and leading crowds to pivot harshly Because five days later, these same crowds would be chanting at the top of their lungs, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Crucify Him! You see, sin can do that. Sin is a powerful adversary. Jesus didn't change, the crowds changed. Sin is this war within, and sin can and will deceive hearts and pull us away from God. And sin worked in their hearts and their lives, and it also works in our hearts and our lives. And as we conclude this week, the sermon series that we have been, if you're just joining us, we're finishing the last week of this sermon series coming from Romans 5 through Romans 7. We've made our way through this sermon series we call The Reign of Grace. Because it demonstrates an almighty and all-powerful God who shows grace out of us in the midst of our sin. So if you open your Bibles, will you find your way there this morning? Romans, we're in chapter 7, finishing this series. We're going to continue in Romans, but next week, Easter Sunday, we're going to take a little bit of a different turn. We'll begin chapter 8. But this week we're finishing chapter 7. It's on page 1183 if you're using that pew Bible in front of you. Today we're discussing this war that's within our hearts. You see, what Paul will describe here in this section of Romans chapter 14 through 20 about his own spiritual experience is he hates what he's doing, but he can't seem to stop doing it. He knows that God gave us the law. It's spiritual. It's good. It's the right thing to do. The problem is he can't seem to do it. There's a battle going on inside of him. There's a war within his heart and he's losing the battle. I used the wrestling illustration to start things off this morning because although there's only two of you in the room, you get the idea of having a combat happening, having this back and forth with two combatants. And specifically in wrestling, there's three periods. Or if you're more of a fighter or a boxer, something there's, there's multiple rounds. And in many ways, this passage, passage lays out in the same way. There's, there's three different rounds or three different cycles that happen here as Paul is demonstrating for us the war that is happening within. So, first, I'm going to read through the whole passage as a summary. I'm using the message translation, and then I'm going to go back through it specifically so you can hear it. But see if you can hear the three different rounds that are happening here. Beginning in verse 14, uh, Paul says this I can anticipate the response that is coming. I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. Isn't this your experience as well? Yes, I'm full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another. I do things that I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary for me. I need something more. For if I know the law, but I can't keep it, the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions. I need help. I realize I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't seem to do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do that anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in action. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there and it trips me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly seem to rebel, and just when I at least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Dear Lord, we come to you this morning. There are some here in this room asking this question this morning. Many, perhaps, understanding, saying, I am at the end of my rope. This battle is beating me up. I'm losing. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one, is there nothing that can help me, that can do anything for me? Lord, in a room of this size, there's definitely someone struggling this morning, maybe many. And Lord, as we'll learn in this passage today, it is not just for those who are far from you, Lord, but those who are close, as close as the Apostle Paul was, and yet the battle rages on, this war within our hearts. So Lord, give us something this morning. Give us something that we can grab onto and grasp onto that we can take home as this battle wages. We trust you will make your word come alive. We thank you for giving it to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you get your white sheets of paper out, it's in your bulletin. It's an outline for you to be able to track along with where we're going this morning. Let me give you a few fill-ins to kind of help make sense out of where I'm headed today. So here we are. We're in round one. Your first fill-in is, I'm losing the tug of war. I'm losing the tug of war. So now let me read it back to you in the translation that you have in front of you. It says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. I've been sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. What I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Now, if you've been following along with us in this series, or if you know the New Testament, you know that Paul has a very impressive resume. He's an apostle. He's the evangelizer to the Gentiles. Specifically, you know, the books that we have in the New Testament, the scripture that we read and study, and we know as the New Testament church, half of those are written by the Apostle Paul. His devotion is impeccable. When you factor in the many times that he was persecuted, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned, he goes through all of these things, and yet he continues to follow after God. He's passionate And he's powerful. He's no doubt that he's looked up to and admired by his peers and by all Christians as we study his material. However, as amazing as Paul was, he has his own struggles. When you consider how spiritual Paul is, and it seems weird to him to be talking about him having a struggle with sin. He's like this spiritual powerhouse, this superhero. It seems like there's no way that he would have troubles in these areas. Multiple times he encourages his readers to follow his own example, he says. He tells the Corinthians to imitate me as I imitate Christ. Doesn't seem like Paul would put himself out there if he didn't think that this would help for living for Jesus. (coughs) So, this passage in Romans is quite revealing. If you look through where we're headed today, you can circle how many times he uses I, talking about himself. He's no longer talking about theological truths that everybody should live by. He's giving himself as an example. He's putting himself out there. So why reveal himself in this passage? Is Paul living some type of double life? No, actually Paul is revealing this internal struggle that every Christian in this room and on this planet battles. He wasn't being a hypocrite. He was being transparent. The Christian has two natures, the old flesh and this new spirit that's at war with it. And I'm thankful that God compelled Paul to write this so that we have an example of someone who is battling through. That we would understand that this struggle is happening to each and every person in this room, not just those who are struggling that the legitimate Christians are also dealing with this thing as well. Now, there's a lot of confusion on this passage. There's a lot of study on this passage. There's a lot of materials written because there's this kind of concept that there's a possibility for a carnal Christian and one who is a spiritual Christian, meaning that a carnal Christian is someone who allows the sinful nature to kind of take the seat on the throne rather than themselves. And that the spiritual Christian puts God on the throne in their lives instead of themselves. And kind of separating the two things in this personification that that actually is a little bit misleading to suppose that this carnal Christian versus the spiritual Christian are two opposing things. That's actually what Paul is writing against as, as, as this leader, as this spiritual truth that he is giving us here. He's understanding that this is happening in each and every one of us. The idea that we could bounce back and forth between the two and be a carnal Christian one day and a spiritual Christian the next day is just a little bit misleading. It's more healthy to look at this as a manner of spiritual maturity. And just like as he writes in other passages to the the Corinthians, that he says uh, we are longing for spiritual milk of the Word when we are young believers, we later will actually hunger after the meat of God's Word. Just like we toddle around when we are young, one day we will be able to walk, to run, to sprint, to jump, to be in a wrestling tournament where you get to play your theme music. <laughs> Those things look differently. What it looks like sometimes for the spiritual journey as well is that we have this progression that happens. This progression from infancy to adult. And there are times... Not that we are carnal Christians, but that we actually take a step back in that development process. When you see a 30-year-old who is acting very immature, what do you say? Well, he's immature. When you see a 30-year-old who is doing the things he was doing when he was 14 or 15, you don't say he's no longer an adult. You just say you're acting like a child. And so as we look through these passages, when we realize this round one of losing the tug of war, that is pulling back and forth, say, I'm losing this tug of war. I'm losing the battle. I'm not living up to the spiritual maturity that I desire in my life. That's what's being communicated here, acting in spiritual immaturity. So round one, I'm losing the tug of war. Round two, I'm losing the desire to fight. I'm losing the desire to to fight. Verse 18, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I don't want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin nature that is living in me. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Now why would these crowds turn on Jesus? The crowds have been throwing down their coats in front of him, cheering his name, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What would happen in their lives in a five-day span that they would be chanting something entirely different? They begin to lose the desire to fight. You see, they were so excited to have this man come riding through the city gates, coming as they understood he was going to come and rule with a sword in his fist. The oppression of the Roman government is all around them. And they are waiting for this man to come in and clean house, deal with the problem. They had an Old Testament example that they had studied that they knew that they had learned about, that David was this king who was a warrior, they didn't understand that Jesus would be a servant leader, that he would give of himself so that all could be saved. And in that, they lose the desire to fight. They, lose the de- they thought that someone would come in and just do it for them. And they lose, they gradually lose the desire to fight. And in five days' time, evil resides in their hearts. Evil took hold of their hearts. Scripturally, this is not Unusual for some of the scriptural heroes that we find. You see, evil is present within me, is what the Apostle Paul here says. You know, the more that we grow in Christ, the more we become aware of our sin and the more we hate it and want to be rid of it. But it's not just the Apostle Paul. In the Old Testament, we read about Job who says, I have heard of you by hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you there, see you, he's talking about God. Therefore I abhor myself, I hate myself, and I repent in dust and in ashes. The prophet Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For once my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The Apostle John, the book of Revelation, when he sees Jesus standing before him in all of his glory, what does he do? When I saw him, Revelations 117, I fell at his feet as if dead. Why? Because of the awareness of the evil that resides within each of us. Losing the desire to fight. Are you losing The desire to fight. A number of years ago, I went through a book. It was a 40-day kind of journey called A Call to Die. And going through day after day, it was one of those situations where you had a daily reading, daily scriptural reading, a devotional thought that went with it. And over 40 days' time, you're working through some of the issues that were in your life. And the, the issue that I was dealing with is what I was looking at with my eyes, what my eyes were seeing on my computer, what my eyes were taking in in the checkout line, those type of things. That was, that was the thing that I was going to spend 40 days working on, a call to die. My roommate decided that he was watching too much television. He said, I'm not going to watch TV for 40 days because of what it is bringing into my life. He didn't realize that we were doing this during the World Series. That became a bit of an issue for him. You know, at 40 days, the night of 40 days going into day 41 is when I tripped and fell flat on my face. So the devil allowed me to say, yeah, you got that book out of the way. Good for you. Day 41, falling flat on my face, being once again aware of the evil that is inside of me and inside of you. Why? Because sin does that. You lose the desire to fight. Round one, I lose the tug of war. Round two, I'm losing the desire to fight. Round three, scripture shows us here, I'm losing and I'm spiraling downward. I'm losing and I'm spiraling downward. My dad was a great wrestler at the same high school that I was at. And so what that meant was that he knew the coaches. He, he had the same coaches I did. He's only 20 years older than me. So, so they would always remind me of how great a wrestler my dad was and how much of a flopping fish I was. But my dad's one move, and he was allowed to come into practice and he'd show me, his one move is something called the spiral ride. It is not a technical move. It's not an exciting move. All it is is you take the guy and you just spin him in a circle until you just wear him out. And my dad could do that. And he could take the best wrestlers in the state and he could just spin him in a circle and wear him out until eventually he wears him to the ground. Verse 22 says, For my inner being I delight in God's law. I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin that is working within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? You see, you can resist sin outwardly by sheer willpower. In any of the 12-step programs, they call this white-knuckle sobriety, (laughs) But it keeps wearing away in your inner man until it spirals you downward, until it wins. In other words, outward morality is not enough. The Pharisees, the ones who were actually working the crowds against him, were outwardly moral. But Jesus again and again had nailed them on their hypocrisy and the evil that was in their hearts. You see, you have to judge sin at the heart level. It is so powerful that Jesus, when he talks about this, when he talks about the sin of the heart and dealing with sin, he says it would be better for you to pluck out your eye, to cut off a limb than to have the sin to continue to rule inside of you. In order to have consistent victory over indwelling sin, we have to have the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and indwelling in us. You see what happens is we all tend to minimize our sin. We excuse our sin as no big deal. But these verses, this chapter of Romans chapter 7, beginning at the beginning of the chapter that we dealt with last week of this this marriage that happens between a a wife and two different types of husbands, uh, and it's just damaging the way that sin destroys. And what we see here is that we cannot excuse sin as no big deal. You see, sin is a combatant. It is a powerful force that is out to control and destroy us. We will need, you will need more than willpower. You will need more than white-knuckle sobriety. If you remember at the beginning of this sermon series, we talked in chapter 5 about the idea of the first Adam. Representing Adam, yes, that we know in the garden, but he represents Humanity as a whole. So Adam in the garden, humanity. Adam 1.0, but then we find Adam 2.0, or the new Adam who is personified in Jesus Christ. Why? Because this spiraling downward that Paul is talking about is literally the spiraling into the grave. Because that is where humanity goes. That's where the first... Adam takes us, all of our efforts, all of our willpower, all of our work. Paul is saying, I'm watching this journey. and I'm just spiraling downward. And this road leads to what? It leads to the grave. And he says, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who will save me from this? Who will pull me out of this? (laughs) After three periods on a wrestling mat, I remember that feeling really well. Who will rescue me? Well, thanks be to God, it says. Here's your feeling I'm losing myself, and I'm finding my Savior. In this process, I'm losing myself and I'm finding my Savior. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Excuse me, I jumped over to Matthew so you can see where this is coming from. Uh, Jesus has just been uh, explaining to his disciples through the apostle Peter who says, "Who Who am I, Peter? What do people say that I am? They say, Well, you're one of the prophets. No, Peter says, You are the Son of God. And he follows that up, and Jesus does, and he explains this to his disciples. He must go to Jerusalem, suffer the many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He would be killed on the third day and then raised to life. And Peter, who had just declared him the Messiah, pulls him aside and says, never, Lord, this will never happen to you. What does Jesus say to Peter? He looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. The road, the journey that you're on leads to grave. You're on the Adam 1.0 journey. And then he turned to his disciples and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Here it is. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it find it. You see, the problem with many Christians is that they're not in despair like that of Paul, but they lack despair. We're not at the end of ourselves yet. We're not in utter despair because when we will, we will come to Christ. And understand it's under His control because we can't assume that outward morality is going to do it. We have to have a change of heart. So the first step to winning the war within is crying out, wretched man I am, he says here. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then he gives the answer, and the answer is clear, that God will set us free through his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he continues, verse 7, verse 25. So then... Or what shall I conclude? Now, if you have your own Bible, you can use the Bible. in the pew. I don't mind either. Uh, I've drawn a circle in here. And this is like one of those crazy, like, diagrams where you do all these different things. But if you look, I'm going to give you a few different examples here. This conclusion that that is being drawn here. So then, the conclusion is, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law. But in my sinful nature, (coughs) a slave to the law of sin. The conclusion, so then... If you go back just a few verses in Romans 7, verse 7, it says, What shall we say then? Circle that. Connect the dots, if you will. Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Go back a few more verses. Romans chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Circle it. Connect the dots. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Do you see the connection, friends? Here's the connection. Here's the conclusion. 6, verse 2. It says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Friends, baptism that we just experienced a few moments ago demonstrates this so well. It demonstrates the journey that we were once on, that John, John the Baptist is telling the story, telling those who he is baptizing, he's saying, repent, you are walking in one way, return, walk in the other direction. Jesus Christ, raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, that we too may live a new life. Baptism demonstrates this well. I've got a video to show you this morning to really kind of put those pieces together for you. Would you watch this? Why baptism?
1: Jesus is baptized at the beginning of his ministry. And at the end of his time on earth, he tells his followers that every believer should have an experience like that in their journey. Now, I was baptized when I was eight years old, but my journey hasn't always lived up to that moment. I've wandered, I've doubted, sometimes I've just rebelled against God. So it begs the question, what was my baptism for? Was it inauthentic? Was it a, a poor attempt at an empty ritual or a rite of passage that didn't stick? What's the point of a moment like that if our journey will still have its struggles? I mean, what is baptism, and why does it matter so much to Jesus? It turns out, as is often the case with Jesus, that there's actually a story behind the story. And the story behind the story in Jesus' baptism is the Exodus. When the Hebrew people were in Egypt, they weren't really a people at all. They were just a bunch of poor, extended family living in somebody else's country where they were property. Every day they went to work and they were reminded that they had no identity, no rights, no freedom by the lashes that hit their backs when they couldn't make enough bricks to keep up with the thriving economy of Egypt. Can you imagine the feeling of the lashes on your back when you couldn't keep up with the demands of your taskmasters? I mean, how about you? Have you ever come home from a day of work and felt like your identity was nothing more than a cog in a machine? Maybe you feel like even the people who are closest to you in life would rather use you than know you. What happens to our identity when the loudest voices are the ones that beat us down? So God looks down and he sees the Hebrew people, and he sees that they know themselves as slaves and workhorses but they don't know themselves as children of God and he decides to do something about it. So he sends Moses into Pharaoh's courts. Moses says let the people go. Pharaoh says no and God sends devastating plagues on the nation of Egypt. Eventually Pharaoh relents and for the first time in generations the Israelite people are free. They walk out of Egypt to become their own people. They come up against the waters of the Red Sea and at that point Pharaoh changes his mind and he sends his armies to get them. Now what do you do when you think that God has saved you, and then you're not so sure? What do you do when doubt and struggle enter in? Maybe you don't do anything. Maybe God comes through. God sends Moses to lead. He puts his hands outstretched over the waters of the Red Sea, and the waters literally part as the people of Israel walk through on dry ground. Now, Pharaoh's armies think they can get to them, so they pursue them, except as they enter the Red Sea, the waters come back in and swallow them up. And all of a sudden, you're Israel. You've been saved twice already. You're standing on dry ground. You've come up out of the water. You keep reading, though. And after God brings Israel out of the water, you sort of wonder if He bet on the wrong horse because they still have struggles on their journey. They still have problems along the way. In fact, there are moments when you flat out wonder if they lost their identity again after their Red Sea moment. It's like they keep listening to these voices that whisper to them or shout to them and say, you're not who you think you are. But maybe that's the point. God didn't bring them through the water because they would be perfect. He brought them through the water because he knew that they would wander and that they would need an anchor in their story. A tether to their identity when lies get shouted at them about who they are and their future. Now, baptism for Jesus doesn't just look back to the Exodus. It looks forward too. Because our deliverance didn't happen at the Red Sea with Moses' arms extended. It happened at the cross with Jesus' arms outstretched. We weren't rescued from Pharaoh's army and we've been saved from the slavery of sin. It's not the waters that cleanse us, but they symbolize a life that has gone to the cross with Jesus and come up from the grave with a new identity of freedom in him. As we're gonna have moments when we're tempted to believe that we're the old us instead of the new us, you're gonna have voices screaming at you that say that you're not holy, you don't belong to him, you weren't loved, but you and I are given a moment to step into the waters to feel grace wash over us from head to toe. Jesus says be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Your sins may seem to pursue you, but they've been drowned in the blood of Christ, shed at the cross. We've been renamed, reclaimed by Jesus. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. We are children of God. Engage in a defiant act of protest against the voices of shame that chase you and tell the world that
0: you belong to Him. Thanks be to God, I'm losing myself, and I'm finding my Savior. Ushers, if you'll make your way forward this morning. I hope that you picked up one of the key lines in there today. Why be baptized? For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only son. He gave his son who died on the cross, but he gave us baptism as a way to remember. He gave us God's words so that we can go back and remember. He gave us even the crossing of the Red Sea as a way to be reminded again and again and again. Something firmly planted, something that you can go back to again and again. Say, I remember that moment because these other voices are strong and they're real and they're there. But when we give ourselves to Him, when we lose ourselves and find our Savior, that is where we find victory. So this morning, if this message, if God's Word spoke to you in some way, please use that connection card as a way to respond. I'll be in the back right after this. If you want to come back and talk to me there as well, I'd love that opportunity to open a discussion. We're not going to answer every question this morning but we can talk through some of these things and understand what it means to live a life, a new life in Christ. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for baptism that we got to see demonstrated uh, here this morning for the two lives that have devoted themselves to you here today. But we are reminded, Lord, that we too are buried through baptism in death, just like you were, but we too are raised to walk in newness of life because of what you have done for each and every one of us. Lord, we give in to the war and trust you will handle the rest of it. We thank you for being the victorious warrior that you are. We thank you for being the the one who rules and reigns forevermore. And we trust that when we put our trust in you, that you will hold all the pieces together. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you move. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.